Okay, so here we are, True North, August 21st, 2010, The Loving Brain, and um, I'm Rick Hansen. And what we're going to be working on today is at the center of these three circles. Right there, the combination of psychology, neurology, and contemplative practice. Because for me, it's at the center of those three circles that the most useful information is to be found. Okay, next slide. Great. And so that said, you know, even though I'm going to show you some very interesting neuroscience pictures and some really, for me, cool information about the brain, it's important also to respect the fact that there is really so much we do not know. Brain science today, I think, is roughly where biology and medicine were about 100 years after the invention of the microscope. That's about 1725, all right? Just imagine how far science and practice has come in the last 300 years. So we're at the very beginnings of this process of exploration. The amount of knowledge about the brain has roughly doubled in the last 20 years. People know about twice as much today than they did just in 1990, which is quite remarkable. I mean, there are many reasons why we live in historically unprecedented times. We always live in historically unprecedented times, but sometimes are more unprecedented than others. All right, it's, and so this is definitely one of those for many reasons. Uh, bad news and good news, but one of the good news, um, I think, is the growing understanding about the brain. That said, we need to be kind of humble here. There's so much we don't know, and as Ani Palmo said, you know, we have no idea what a thought is, even though we have them continually. No one still knows exactly how in the world the nervous system produces the experience of the color red, or the meaning of the words I'm using right here today, or the taste of chocolate or good coffee, right? No one exactly knows how that happens still. So there's a kind of awe about that for me and an amazement that as we sit here right now, the thing we're talking about, which is to say the human brain, you know, the three pounds of tofu between the ears. What is that in kilograms? About one and a half kilos right between the ears, right? The thing that we're talking about is producing the experience of sitting here right now. Amazing. Really amazing. So the next one, please. So I'm going to fix this microphone here. Get this right. All right, good. Can you hear me all right? Yeah. Yesterday we had kind of a feedback problem. I don't think we have that problem today. Okay, great. So um, just to set up a kind of framework for today, if you think about it, there are three basic places you can act to make something better. You can act out there in the world, right, including relationships. Uh, you can also act on the body in terms of doing things like exercise or taking vitamins or taking medication. Um, and you can also act directly on the mind. All of them are very important. Sometimes people think one is more important than the others. I, don't, I think they're all tied for first place, right? They're all very important. If you want to make the world better, you can intervene in the economy, you can intervene in culture, you can intervene in nutrition, you can intervene in psychology. They're all different ways to make the world a better place. That said, we have fairly limited influence over the world and pretty limited influence over our, our own bodies. But we actually have lots and lots of influence over our own mind. Second, whatever we do out in the world usually is situationally specific. In other words, it's specific to a particular setting. And when we're in that setting, we're affected by it. But when we're out of that setting, we're not affected by it. 
often that's the case for the body. When we fix something in the body, or we, you know, that's fine, but that's only relevant when we're using that part of the body or sensing that part of the body. But our mind, boy, we take our mind wherever we go, right? What's the word that Pascal uses for mind? L'esprit, right? We take l'esprit wherever we go. So if we, so it is where we have the most power, and it is also that area, with, that domain, which has the most effect. So for me, that's a good argument for realizing that it's good to become skillful with the mind, not just skillful in terms of affecting the world, or skillful with the body. And today, our fundamental framework will be the development of greater skillfulness with the mind, and we will be exploring the opportunity to accomplish that through becoming increasingly skillful with the brain. Next slide. So, <clears throat> this slide, um, it's a little complex, so I'm going to go through a few basic ideas here, all right? As I said, uh, in Buddhism, the three pillars of practice in the original language of the earliest surviving uh, written record of the Buddhist teaching, those three pillars are sila, samadhi, and panya, often translated as virtue, concentration, and wisdom, or virtue, mindfulness, and wisdom. These three pillars of practice in Buddhism are also very commonly um, uh, respected in other traditions as well. I have a friend who's a Christian uh, minister and professor of uh, spiritual development in Christianity, and he said that in, in a number of Christian contemplative traditions, they use almost exactly the same words, mindfulness, virtue, and wisdom. And I think that's very interesting because those three um, pillars of practice, which are also the basis not just of spiritual life, but of really any good life. We need to be aware, right? We need to be upright and moral. We need to have virtue. And we need to acquire wisdom. For me, it's kind of hard to think of any three things that are more fundamental than those three just for ordinary human happiness. All right. Now, I don't think it's an accident that those three keep showing up because they correspond to three fundamental functions of the nervous system, which is to say learning or attending, that's mindfulness. Nervous system attends to things and learns from them. Second, the nervous system regulates. It's a very important function in the nervous system, regulation, keeping dynamic systems in balance so they maintain homeostatic homeostasis or equilibrium, right? So that they're organized around a healthy set point and stay within range. We gotta regulate these systems at very, very many levels in the body-mind. And the primary regulator of the body is the brain. For example, um, infants who are born with perfectly good organs but without any cortex, uh, they have a condition called spina bifida. They have a uh, spinal cord, but they have nothing above the spinal cord. It's a tragic situation, of course. They inevitably die because often within days, if rare, sometimes weeks, but even you know, certainly days or hours, because they, they just can't regulate all the systems. Right? That's, again, a fu second fundamental function of the nervous system. And the third function is to learn from experience or just learn in general. Right? And, that's the, and, and, to, and to select, to set priorities and to choose left instead of right more instead of left, less, 
right? Hot instead of cold. That's, again, a fundamental function of the nervous system that maps really well to wisdom, which is in many ways a matter of prioritizing. A uh, definition of wisdom that I really like is the idea of choosing a greater good over a lesser one. Right. See the mapping of the two? Virtue, mindfulness, wisdom, or mindfulness, virtue, and wisdom mapping to learning, regulating, and selecting, or prioritizing. Those also, interestingly, map to the three great phases of psychological growth or healing, as well as spiritual practice, which I spoke of a little bit last night. And the three phases are being aware of something. The second phase is to work with the contents of awareness beyond awareness, simply being present with it in a mindful, open, spacious way. And the third phase of practice is to replace uh, what we've released in effect, okay? Or summarized for me in six words, the first phase is to let be, the second phase is to let go, the third phase is to let in. We'll be working in all of those phases today, but a lot of the emphasis today will be on the second phase, working with the contents of mind. Because mindfulness is so important, because this is a pretty uh, mindful community right here in this room, it's important to understand why it's important to work with the contents of mind above and beyond mindfulness alone. Mindfulness alone is often effective. It's, and it's always better to be mindful of something. Uh, there's a nice traditional metaphor, which is that if you take a tablespoon, or whatever the metric equivalent is, of salt, and pour it into a cup of water, and then drink it, it will be very yuck, right? Just imagine that for a second, yuck. But if you take the same big spoonful of salt and pour it into a clean bucket of water, or even more, a clean lake, let it swirl around and then drink, right? You'll hardly taste the salt at all. It's the same quantity of salt, it's just held in a bigger space. The same thing if we're angry or afraid or feeling inadequate or feeling lost or having heartache or, or shame or guilt or anything like that. If we are stuck to it, that is hell in some ways. That is, a, that is painful suffering. That is suffering. Whereas if we can hold that painful experience, if we can hold that salt in a much larger container in the sense of open, spacious, a big, vast space of mind, then it's not at all so overwhelming. So mindfulness is absolutely important, absolutely important. But very often, it's not enough, is it? We have to work with the contents of mind. That's where in Buddhism, the Buddha talked about wise effort, where we basically pull weeds and plant flowers in the garden of the mind. Right? We basically encourage those things that are unwholesome from a pragmatic standpoint, a practical standpoint, unwholesome, not a moralistic one, unwholesome in the sense that they make us unhappy and they lead to the harm of ourselves and others, right? So we want to let those go. We want to help them out the door. That's the pulling weeds part. And we also want to encourage wholesome factors, positive factors, and that's the planting flowers part. So that's the working with emphasis here, and we'll be doing a fair amount of working with today. Okay. All right, great. The next slide, please. And so what in the world does the brain have to do with the path of awakening, or even more simple, um, elemental human happiness. So I'd like to do a, um, some little practices here that relate to steadying the mind, and then I will explain what was happening in your brain 
as you were doing them, which will then be a good entree to a discussion I want to have about uh, the brain and the mind and some basic facts about the brain. All right? So steadiness of mind, that's, of course, the, the samadhi, concentration, mindfulness pillar of practice, is very important. It's important to be able to function at work or raise children or keep talking to your husband or wife or partner uh, of whatever type. And uh, we need to be able to keep our attention going, right? We need to have basic steadiness of mind. But we did not evolve to have steadiness of mind. Our ancestors who uh, just became deeply concentrated on the sensations of breathing, you know, in, out, in, out, whap, they got nailed, right? The ancestors that stayed alive, you ever watch a bird on the, you know, eating on the ground? Or a lizard or a mouse, right? They're like this, right? They're constantly looking. That's the nature of mind. That's the, that's the nature of attention. It's like a spotlight that's constantly Right? So if we want to have steadiness of mind, we've got to get control of that spotlight. Also, as we talked about last night, that spotlight's extremely important because it's also a vacuum cleaner. In other words, whatever it rests upon gets sucked into the brain. Because, as we'll talk about a bit later, Neurons that fire together, wire together. That's a famous saying from the work of the Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb. Neurons that fire together, wire together. And as we'll be talking um, and exploring later, mental activity changes neural structure. So, and it does so especially for what's in the field of focused attention. So what we rest that spotlight upon fast tracks into our own brain. That's another reason why it's important to gain control of that spotlight, to pull it away from the weeds, because if it's sitting on the weeds, the weeds grow, right? past the point of usefulness. If it's sitting on the weeds past the point of usefulness in the mind, the weeds grow. Right? If, in other words, if you're just simply resting in feelings of regret or resentment or sorrow or inadequacy or guilt or loss, past that kind of just right point, where it's useful, honestly, at that point, because neurons that fire together wire together, you're just doing one more lap in hell, one more circuit around the track, and it gets a little deeper every day. So being able to pull attention away from what's not helpful to us and others, right, that's important. And it's also important to place attention, to place that spotlight where we want it, on the flowers we want to grow in the garden of the mind like paying attention to wholesome qualities in the mind and heart, like gratitude, or our own goodness, our own strengths, or paying attention to the good ways other people are treating us. Those are, those are useful things. So it's really important to gain control of that spotlight vacuum cleaner and develop more steadiness of mind. I'll say personally that my own um, spiritual practice really took off when I uh, worked with a teacher named Christina Feldman, who's been a major teacher for me, who lives in England, uh, uh, particularly around steadiness of mind. Okay, so I really encourage that to you. And for those of you that do a regular mindfulness practice of one kind or another, as householders in this world of wonders, 
right, is so stimulating and so distracting. Uh, we're surrounded by media devised by the best minds of our generation to continually distract us and make us want some new thing, okay? In that context, as householders, we really, really got to get control of that spotlight, okay? So now how to do it, though? How to do it? When we have that monkey mind inside of our own brain, that monkey brain. Um, I'm going to make five suggestions as pra little practices. They're little experiments. So as we do them, you want to, if you could, please try to do two things. Try to do the practice and also observe what it's like to do the practice, including any obstructions or difficulties. And then we'll talk about that. And then at the end of that, I will suggest that you try to stay with every single breath for five minutes. That's 75 or so breaths in a row. For many people, they fall off the, you know, it's the first, about somewhere between four and six breaths is when their mind goes away. See if you can stay past that threshold, you know, breath after breath after breath for five whole minutes. Just five minutes. Okay, and then we'll talk about it. All right? Okay, so you want to try this? And as I said before, feel free to ignore my suggestions or change them. I will talk about paying attention to the breath, but if that is uncomfortable for you for any reason, including perhaps because you've had painful, even traumatic experiences in your life, which can make it uncomfortable for people to pay attention to the breath, feel very free to choose another object of attention. You can have your eyes open or closed, whatever you like. Many people find it, I think, easier to uh, steady the mind when their eyes are closed, but whatever uh, you want to do is perfectly fine. So let's begin. So just as a foundation, see if you can get a little settled here. And then the first suggestion, set an intention for this sitting. It could be a simple intention like, I will be mindful. Or, I'm letting go of my worries. And as you set that intention, try to do it both from the top down, using words in your mind, and from the bottom up, by getting a felt sense a bodily sense of what it feels like to fulfill that intention. For example, if it's an intention to be mindful, imagine being in the body of or, of, or having some of the qualities of a teacher who is for you a model of mindfulness, including perhaps sitting like the Buddha himself, or a time when you yourself we're very mindful and sort of bring it to mind so you are experiencing the sense of the intention already being realized. So take a moment please to set an intention here for this sitting.
All right, the second suggestion, really relax. Some good ways to do that include taking three to ten long exhalations, longer than inhalation. And while doing that, relaxing your tongue. Third suggestion, feel as safe as you reasonably can. There is no perfect safety in this life, but most of us can reasonably feel safer. For example, bring to mind a knowledge of being in a protected setting right now among good people be aware of some of your own resources some of your strengths that can help you cope with whatever life brings. Noticing any guardedness in yourself and seeing if you can relax some of that and let some or even all of that go. Noticing any needless anxiety and letting it go. Noticing any bracing against life and seeing if you can relax and let life flow through you, feeling as safe and strong as you reasonably can. Noticing if it feels at all frightening to imagine feeling safer. And see if you can remind yourself of the good reasons for feeling safer, relaxing vigilance. <laughs> <laughs> 
being at ease. fourth suggestion is to open to and encourage some positive emotion such as gratitude or peacefulness or even a sweet happiness. You're not straining or forcing just open to and encourage some simple positive emotion here and now. This may be and is likely to be quite mild or subtle and that's fine. Simply see if you can open to and sink into as much happiness as possible. Notice any difficulty in opening to a positive emotion. That's all right. And see if you can let that difficulty go and find some things that help you feel a basic quality of well-being. Perhaps things you're grateful for or glad about. fifth and last suggestion. See if you can get a sense of awareness as like a vast and boundless space, like the sky, through which sounds, sensations, thoughts, and other contents of mind come and go like clouds with a sense of a kind of bird's eye view of the passing thoughts and sensations and other contents of awareness held in a great panoramic awareness.
being open, spacious awareness itself. Now, on the basis of these five suggestions, and you can let their effects continue on in your mind, let's be aware of each and every breath for the next five minutes. Sensing the breath, or something else if you like, in the belly, the stomach, or perhaps the chest, or around the upper lip, or all of these things. Applying attention to the beginning of each inhalation, and then sustaining it for the duration of the inhalation, and then applying attention to the beginning of each exhalation and sustaining it for the duration of the exhalation. Simply being a body breathing. Given over to breathing for the next five minutes and releasing, renouncing, everything else. 